Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On February 23rd, 1917, female textile workers and housewives protested a bread shortage in Petrograd, the imperial capital of the Russian Empire. It was the beginning of 12 days of protests, riots, and political wheeling dealing that concluded with the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. This was the beginning of the Russian Revolution, one of the most important historical events of the 20th century, second perhaps only in consequence to the world war that midwifed its birth. Further along, a lengthy chain of cause and effects from that bread protest. By the end of the year, a communist state had been established atop a sixth of the world's territory. Revolution after revolution, most momentously, the Chinese Revolution would follow the example of 1917. Fascism would, in part, arise as a reaction to it. And following 1945, the consequences of the Russian Revolution would shape 50 years, almost 50 years, of international politics. With me to give a brief introduction to the Russian Revolution is Professor Richard L. Hernandez of the Department of History at East Carolina University. He is particularly interested in the social, cultural, and religious aspects of the revolution, particularly as they occurred in rural areas. Currently, he is at work on a manuscript tentatively entitled Political Religion and Religious Politics, Radical Modernity, Traditional Culture, and the Building of Socialism in Rural Russia, which is almost as difficult to say as rural juror, but not quite as bad rural <laughs> Russia. Um, so, Rick, uh, it's July. Uh, the three great modern revolutions are typically given as the, the, the Trinity. The revolutionary Trinity are the American, the French, and the Russian. So let's talk about the only one of those that didn't really start in, or occur in July. How about that? Um, it's... Uh, we were talking before we started the podcast about the difficulty of framing. When does a revolution begin? I'm supposed to know something about the American Revolution. Some people begin 1763. Some people begin 1768. Me, I like 1772, 1773. I'm pretty late. Um, where would you put the beginning of the Russian Revolution? Well, yeah. Are, there are multiple candidates, and they, and let's, they let's go through a couple of them. Well, one you could go uh, a good a good long view beginning would be the 1860s. Why? Because that that was um, the era of the so-called Great Reforms, during which uh, the empire uh, finally emancipated its serfdom, its uh, peasantry from. Uh, from serfdom, uh, a condition that was actually uh, strikingly uh, similar to the chattel slavery in the United States. In fact, it's the the emancipation of the serfs was um, uh, preceded the emancipation of the slaves in the United States <clears throat> by uh, by I think what a few years, two, two years or so, as I recall. Uh, right, and. Uh, <sighs> That emancipation uh, w was undertaken 
with great hopes that it would set Russia finally on um, a, a firm path toward uh, what we might call modernization or a more modern state. It would resolve a lot of the uh, social and political tensions that were racking the empire. But in fact, it, it, it probably actually exacerbated those tensions. Um, how, how did it do that? Well, uh, among the more basic uh, uh, reasons why you can say it exacerbated is that it, it failed to um, actually live up to the hopes and dreams of the peasantry and, or, or maybe even a more pragmatic sense. It, it, it failed to actually deliver what the peasants needed, which was um, enough land to actually sustain their uh, their their lives, and so um, a- along with that, I should say, uh, so there was a great disappointment in in it didn't deliver enough land to the peasants. It also uh, kickstarted uh, the uh, the uh, the process of urbanization of the country and the industrialization of the country. Um, so it's with the emancipation that the sort of excess peasant labor was uh, the, uh, was absorbed into the uh, the urban uh, uh, milieu in a, in a much quicker pace than it had been taking place until then. And yet the cities are not developing in the way that cities are in, say, Britain, France, or the United States. They're still relatively unsophisticated. They are not... Um, People are coming to the cities, but they're not really, as we should say, not having a better life in the city. No, absolutely right. Um, it, it's it's uh, what, what we see happening is a sort of uh, the industrial revolution in uh, sped up, and with uh, with all the, um, the 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 ill effects, social effects of, of the industrial revolution, sort of in, in higher. Uh, degree, right? Uh, right. Worse, so, in worse conditions. That's all, right. All the bad f- conditions and none of the benefits. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you can see that. Yeah, well, we'll get to some of the. What's another possible date of the uh, Russian Revolution? Uh, well, beginning. I mean, Maybe a more reasonable starting point would be to refer to the first Russian Revolution, and, and people um, uh, tend not to know that 1917 itself was a year of two revolutions, but even prior to 1917, there was a revolution in 1905. And in 1905, uh, there was a, a genuine uh, social um, uprising in the capital city of Petersburg. Um, and uh, the, the, the end result of that was actually the, the granting of a, of a constitution and the establishment of a, uh, a, a um, proto-parliament of sorts. It was very limited uh, in comparison to other parliaments uh, at the time, but it was a, 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 a big step in the direction of, of, a, of a, a political modernization of Russia. And so, so, a, so the Duma, which was the parliament at the time, was, was um, created as a result of the 1905 revolution. And... At first, it looked as if the, the Russia was on its way to becoming a constitutional monarchy. Um, but as with the 1860s reforms, um, the 1905 uh, reforms, the political reforms, also ended up being a, a great disappointment. Um, so more less occur- resulted than people had hoped. 
That's right. That's right. That uh, it, it, it wasn't very long after the establishment of the Duma that um, the Tsar clearly was not going to cede very much power to this institution, and it um, only frustrated the hopes of, of liberals um, who were really the, the, the main uh, actors in the 1905 revolution. Um, While at the same time, as I gather, offending the autocracy, I mean, the other nobles uh, with the czar's vacillation. Sure, absolutely. Um, so there were also uh, parties, of course, who, who, were, who were no fans of this uh, reform, who were not interested in constitutionalism at all. And, uh, but um, it, it was interestingly, at the same time that this, this sort of higher political um, narrative is taking place of the 1905 revolution, it's also important to realize that the 1905 revolution took place with actual uh, workers in the streets uh, protesting and, and um, there was, there was some violence and it was at the 1905 revolution that this institution that's come to be known as the Soviet uh -huh. or Soviets uh, was invented spontaneously um, sort of like the Paris commune. Uh -huh. the, 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 the term Soviet sort of comes into uh, usage to name this institution that came about spontaneously. And what uh, was it? And the, well, it was the workers organizing themselves into councils to sort of take a revolutionary political power. Okay. Uh, what was, uh, in 1905, if we could, from 1905 to the next nine to ten years, yeah. um, what's the basic social composition of the Russian Empire? Um, and let's just make things simple for us. Uh, it's, yeah. This is very wrong to do so, but let's just focus on the ethnic Russian part of the empire. Uh, maybe... Ukraine, but no more than that. Um, what when we talk about the the, the workers forming councils, how yes. how important were workers to the economy, um, and how many of them were there as a percentage of the of the labor force? Yeah, well, in nineteen oh five, the country as a whole was made up probably of eighty percent of the eighty percent were peasants, and. Um, at the same time, uh, the workers probably amounted to no more than, I don't know, somewhere between 5 and 10%. Uh, the two biggest cities in the country, Moscow and St. Petersburg, were each, by about 1917, only about 2 million um, in population, whereas the empire itself was 180 million, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is uh, an overwhelmingly... A rural country and a country made up uh, almost entirely uh, of peasants. And so it's a good question to ask, you know, so why would we focus on the, on the workers at all? Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a question you were just asking me. Yep. I, I, I would say that um, they're important, especially in 1917, uh, because they, because of their presence in the cities, uh, that's all there is to it. That that all the political power was concentrated in these two urban areas, mainly in Petersburg, mm -hmm. and the workers, by virtue of their actual activity on the ground in the cities, were able to punch 
far above their their weight, so to speak, uh, because of that. So the workers, it simply have power because they are close to the parliament. They're in the center. They're at the center of power of right. po political and economic power and military and military. Right. Absolutely. Um, it's also uh, important to remember that most that the working class, so to speak, the proletariat of the workers in the cities were really, again, only um, recent transplants from the village. And so that, in, in fact, one could say that they were simply um, industrialized uh, peasants, by and large. And... Uh, and so the, that that plays out over 1917 and over the next several years in very interesting ways as well. Uh -huh. um, but uh, so that's important to note as well. Um, in 1917, yeah, they're important. And you opened the the our conversation with that um, reference to the food riot. Um, they're important in 1917, uh, especially with the February um, events, because. Uh, because of the war, the war, the, the country was still in, in the war and um, industrial production was um, the government attempting to ratchet up industrial production at the same time that the economy was collapsing all around them. Well, let's, let, let's talk about the war and then okay. get to, and get to the uh, ratcheting up of industrial production. I sh we should say that there is um, tremendous growth in the population of Russia between 1860, between the emancipation of the serfs and right. the beginning of the First World War. The figures I've got, it goes from 74 to 164 million. So there's right. immense pressure on the resources. Nevertheless, by 1913, they're the largest grain exporter in the world, um, right. bigger than the United States, uh, despite what the United States like to think, likes to think, think of itself at right. the time. Um, then the war comes. Um, Russia is allied, curiously enough, with the Republic of France, and uh, that's a, a historical curiosity that need not concern us now. And with uh, Britain, uh, they go to war against Germany, and they do very badly. Um, and they do much better against Austria-Hungary. But the results are nevertheless catastrophic, right? Right. Absolutely. Catastrophic. Um you could simply you can look at the the demographics of mobilization. Eleven million men were mobilized uh, for the front, mm -hmm. and within the first couple of years, I think the casualties were something around three million. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the mobilization alone uh, crippled the economy. Right. right? Um, because it's taking away people from the farms the that's yeah. right from, from the farms and from, and from labor uh, mm -hmm. in the cities that's absolutely right um and moreover uh what food stuffs were being produced and were available the priority was to get them to the front to support the troops mm -hmm. and so the war um itself i mean the conditions of the war certainly uh, made it possible for the Bolsheviks to come power. Without without the war, uh, none of this w would have happened the way it did. Um, but it all begins with the fact that the war um, devastated Russia socially and economically. And this uh, led to the chain of events like the, the, the food riots that end up turning into 
mass protests that end up being organized into Soviets and, and you know, military revolutionary councils and ultimately the Bolshevik uh, seizure of power. So by the winter of 1916-1917, there are food shortages, even though apparently uh, the country was actually glutted with food. I guess it was just impossible to transfer it back and forth or... I don't know that it was glutted with food as much as um, I do. I do know that in addition to um, the labor market being devastated because of the mobilization, there was also uh, uh, some very important um, blockades. Mm-hmm. Russia was being blockaded so that uh, some some imports were, were not getting in as well as what would normally be the case. And we have to remember that Petersburg is way up in the north, uh, the fringes of the empire, and the, and the uh, agricultural areas are far to the south. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that probably also um, contributed uh, to, to the crisis. Just before we get to the events of the, the February Revolution, um, as it's confusingly called, I mean, there's the, uh, there's, and we'll get into reasons why everything is, is, is sort of salami sliced into discrete segments, um, February Revolution, October Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, many, I believe, have in the past seen modernization as the culprit. Um, simple people like me just think of it as the first rule of war, but a more sophisticated uh, explanation of it has often been the process of modernization. Modernization theory has been the way that 20th century people and 21st century people sort of uh, explain ourselves to ourselves. Um, what do you think of that now? And uh, what could you explain the theory and, and what do you believe think about it now? Oh, I'm not sure what you mean by modernization theory. Yeah, basically that the growth of modern industrial capitalism in the Russian Empire, the pressures of it, created the revolution. Ah. No, I I would stick... Yeah, that's a... It, it seems clear that if World War One hadn't happened, that... Um, Russia would have undergone some sort of social political convulsion. Um, in fact, it was it was seen pretty clear it was heading there before the war even began. Um, so, in, and, in some, if I may, so in some ways, the war, the unity of the war, staved it off for a little bit, perhaps for a little bit, absolutely, yeah. or yeah. for for a very short time. There sure. was a sort of, of patriotic fervor, yeah. and. Um, uh, the ability of, of the imperial government to sort of uh, finally, you know, really uh, circumvent the pseudo-constitutional regime that it had set up in 1905, all that was made possible by, 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 the, by the war at the beginning. But uh, so one could argue that um, the modernization of Russia over the long haul, really from Peter the Great on through the great reforms up to 1917, uh, was a was a process that inherently was fraught with um, contradictions and, and, and tensions that um, had to eventually, or maybe even multiple times, sort of bubble over in, into conflict. Um, so, you know, the question that I think uh, that most historians have been wrestling with since 1917 is, um, 
why the Bolsheviks won out at the end. Um, yeah. Could Russia have turned out? Could Russia have become a, a, a liberal democratic regime? We, let's 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 postpone that one for a little bit too. Right. February revolu- February Revolution. How does it start? Uh, what happens? It starts as you mentioned with the uh, the food shortage. Um, there were uh, strikes. Uh, oh, food sh- uh, protests against food shortages uh, evolve into strikes and mass demonstrations. These um, eventually coalesce around certain political sentiments, particularly an end to the war, the, the necessity of ending the war, and uh, more and more sentiments against the autocracy, against the autocracy. Uh, this is at the end of February. And uh, around February 23rd, 24th, a series of these food riots become strikes, mass demonstrations, uh, become very widespread. Uh, tens of thousands, really, uh, maybe upwards of 50, 60,000 workers protesting in the streets. This gets to the point where the imperial government um, tries to act with the military garrison that's in Petersburg uh, to put down this this uprising. And the soldiers, who are, again, peasants, um, mm-hmm. refuse to fire on these crowds. Uh-huh. And this is the really the event that precipitates the whole chain reaction um, all the way down to October, mm-hmm. as a consequence of the of the of the imperial government's inability to put down the the mass demonstrations. A faction of the Duma, uh, mostly liberal democratic uh, representatives in the Duma, known as the Cadets. KD for Constitutional Democrats, declare themselves to be uh, a government. Um, they call themselves the provisional government. In Literally in Russian, it means the temporary government. Um, and they uh, uh, form themselves into a government in the hopes of stabilizing the situation. It happens all very quickly. It's all within a matter of, uh, of, of a week or so. Um, at the same time, the military... Uh, Command the generals um, begin to shift their their allegiance or their loyalty away from the Tsar and toward the provisional government to the point where finally Nicholas is is faced with specific generals coming to him uh, appealing to him his sense of patriotism his love of and care for the country to abdicate. And so ultimately his abdication comes as a consequence of the generals um, applying pressure on him. So without the support of the army, there is no czar. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's what happens. And he abdicates in favor first of his son uh, and then changes his mind, abdicates in, in favor of his youngest brother. Uh, the really curious thing that happens, though, uh, so far, th- this actually sounds to be like a, s- a standard textbook, if you might say, a liberal democratic sort of revolution against a monarch. Mm-hmm. But simultaneous with the formation of this provisional government by Duma representatives, elected representatives, um, who were, of course, taking extra constitutional authority. I mean, they, this was 
absolutely outside the constitutional framework at the time, but nevertheless, they were elected. Uh, at the same time, socialist intellectuals of various parties and various stripes were organizing the workers and the soldiers who were out on the streets protesting, of course, organizing them into this Soviet, into a Petrograd Soviet, harking back to 1905. Um, and it's a curious uh, uh, development. Uh, one of the peculiar developments of the Russian Revolution at this, at this point is that two institutions arise at the same time. Historians refer to it as dual power. Right. In a sense, these two institutions, the Petrograd Soviet of workers and soldiers, deputies, and the provisional government, sort of um, – they don't really share power, but uh, they – they are two. in parallel <laughs> we keep each other into check in check or goad each other into yeah or try to occupy the same space at the same time which according to physics and politics is impossible that's right yeah that's um and of course that will have consequences in then just what nine months um or so or less um yeah. What? Um, so, who are the power? Who are the parties that all of a sudden emerge? You've you mentioned the cadets, the Constitutional Democrats. Um, right. We've got the Mensheviks. They're Social Democrats. Right. The Social Democratic uh, Social Democrats, or we might call them the Marxists, uh, for for uh, maybe a, a more commonplace way to understand. The Marxists were split in two. Um, factions, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. And the Mensheviks were a a more, um, we might say, orthodox or European-style Marxists who understood that, that the Marxist revolution, the socialist revolution, wouldn't happen until certain levels of development would take place in the economy. And these, the Mensheviks in particular, were of this ilk that they thought, you know, Russia still was too... Um, underdeveloped and needed to have a, 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 a period of level, liberal democratic bourgeois uh, regime before socialism would come into place. But the Bolsheviks led by Lenin, uh, especially Lenin himself, uh, was convinced that such a revolution could be sped up. It could actually take place uh, under the leadership of an activist, professional, revolutionary class, without the uh, the mass support of a, of a of a large proletariat class, which of course Russia didn't have. It had some proletarian, um, had a working class, but it was, as we've said, tiny at the time. So, this so the Bolsheviks and the most and the and the Mensheviks were both social democrats, but they were of a fairly different. Um, Tendencies. So, the, so Lenin is an unorthodox Marxist. This is why uh, it was his wife Krupskaya says he was the he was uh, the worst Marxist ever. She has some remark like that. I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I I may you know some people would call him an unorthodox. Some people would call him orthodox. It's a it's a sort of. Um, Who's, inter, who's, it's an intramural. Yeah, right. Who's checking the cards? You know, really have like, much, yeah. much. But, but in any case, the Western European Marxists would call him, you know, an unorthodox. Marxist. So, if cadets, Mensheviks, Bolsheviks. I guess and we've they, got some monarchist holdouts somewhere. Um, there were some monarchist parties as well, but really, the 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 the, the big player. Uh, 
on the stage were the Socialist Revolutionary Party, or the SRs. And they were the party that represented the the peasantry. And because by virtue of the peasantry's huge uh, size, um, you know, they they should have been ultimately the party that won out in this whole process. Mm -hmm. But um, they were agrarian socialists, essentially. And uh, when the Soviets, when the Petrograd Soviet was formed... Rather, I should say, when the Petro, when the provisional government was formed, it was dominated by liberal Democrats like the Cadets, um, some moderate Marxists, or moderate monarchists, and this when the and the Petrograd Soviet was formed, it was dominated by Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries. Over time, over the course of 1917, interestingly, both institutions drift leftward, you might say, such that by October of 1917, the the provisional government was dominated by socialist revolutionaries, by socialists. And and there was only one or two representatives of the of the Liberal Democrats left. And the Soviet was dominated by the Bolsheviks primarily, but also left wing Mensheviks and left wing socialist revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, one before we get on to sort of the activities of the Soviets and what happens between say I don't know March April and October, um, yeah. what's the importance of uh, many have pointed to the importance of the concept of intelligentsia here? Um, this is the idea that you just mentioned in passing about Lenin believing that intellectuals should control the direction of the workers. Is is that right? Or? Right. Right, Lenin is a is a is a quintessential example of of, of an intelligent. Um, it's a Russian term, intelligentsia. Um, it's we use it in English now, and we usually mean basically intellectuals. But the, but in the Russian context, the intelligentsia um, are a, a sort of um, it's a it's a it's a it's a classification or it's a category of people who uh, are politically active. Uh, in uh, and it dates all the way back again to before the great reforms of the 1860s. The intelligentsia were anybody who was intellectually committed to um, to pursuing uh, not necessarily revolution but social justice, essentially. Especially, it was aimed uh, against serfdom. Um, and so the in, intelligentsia, uh, basically all politicians in the Russian Empire by the time of 1917, really can be characterized as, as intelli- intelligentsia because whether they were constitutional Democrats or liberals, all the way over to the left wing of the Marxists under, under Bolsheviks, because um, until the 1905 uh, revolution, there were no political parties in Russia except in this conspiratorial sense. You right. know, you, you formed a party not to gain power or to win elections. You formed a party to agitate and, and be an activist for social justice, essentially. So party is faction and faction is underhanded and unconstitutional and anti-Tsar. That's of. right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. There's a certain conspiratorial aspect to all party politics, you might say, in the empire up to 1905. Wow. So, so it's a long-standing tradition, even. To, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh uh, dear. And yeah. 
Um, we don't want to draw too many contemporary parallels. We're historians, but uh, nonetheless, sometimes you feel it creeping on you. Um, so yeah. uh, March, April, what, what happens with these Soviets? They start to expand across the empire uh, quite rapidly. Um, right. It, the Petrograd Soviet forms, um, a, a, a Soviet forms in Moscow. Um, Soviets are being formed throughout the empire, as you say, in, in in towns and cities across the empire. Um, uh, one of the first things that um, the Petrograd Soviet does, uh, under the leadership, again, of, of these political parties, these intellectuals, these intelligentsia, um, the the, the the Soviet itself was formed sort of spontaneously by workers, but these intelligentsia types, the SRs and the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, sort of take over the thing um, and form a, an executive council within the Soviet. Mm -hmm. And this executive council um, issues <clears throat> what's what it called Order Number One. It was, in fact, the first decree issued, and it was aimed at the military, and it essentially... Um, democratized the front it uh essentially decapitated the army it it gave um it it uh, neutralized the discipline of the army by saying that the that the soldiers um didn't have to follow military discipline um and essentially it it dis dissolved the front um it was it was catastrophic in its consequence um and this of course led to it's contributed to the chaos, the social and political chaos of the country. And so the, the Soviet uh, initially uh, flexed its muscle in this way, uh, making it clear that it had, uh, that it represented uh, and spoke for not only the workers, but also the soldiers uh, on the front. Uh, now, throughout the rest of the country, uh, this situation of sort of dual power took place as well, where the Soviets would form and they would um, maybe have as, as sort of counter, they would be sort of countervailing powers uh, standing next to other civil authorities that, that might exist at the time. Um, it happened also on the factory level. In the factories, workers would organize themselves into Soviets and they would... Um, attempt to influence or share control of the factories along with the management of the place. And so this sort of situation of dual power sort of replicated itself uh, in interesting ways um, uh, throughout the country geographically, but up and down the, um, the social structure as well. I don't know if that's... Yeah, that's, for, that's very helpful. Um, so one the name we we've mentioned the name but we haven't gotten to him in advance uh uh yet and that might be surprising for those who uh like myself who don't know much about the revolution and that's vladimir Ilyich lenin mm -hmm. he he arrives on april 3rd and it's important for those of us who know nothing to realize that it's not as if he jumps is catapulted into the head of the provisional government or anything else is that right i mean he's he yeah. is he's becoming he's an onlooker who's then gradually involving himself in events and well, positioning himself or how, how how does this how does lenin begin to make himself self a force well he's he until april he was in exile um 
and uh, the Germans uh, ship him into Russia very cleverly to help destabilize the situation. But even while he's in exile, um, he is communicating uh, by post with his Bolshevik comrades in Russia, and he is uh, berating them and uh, exhorting them uh, to to take a militant action because the Bolsheviks in Russia, apart from Lenin, before he got there, were a much more conciliatory crowd. They they tended to be more cooperative with the Mensheviks and the, and the social revolutionaries. A few of them actually uh, advocated a sort of coalition of all left wing forces. But Lenin, uh, from the very beginning of this whole um, development, even when he was in exile, uh, insisted that the Bolsheviks themselves take direct uh, military, militant sort of action to take power, which at the time seemed ludicrous and, and was actually thought so by his colleagues in right. Russia. So Kamenev and Stalin have just gotten out of Siberian exile, and right. they're arguing that there should be some sort of common front, uh, conditional support, uh, what is it, defensive, defensist position on the war. And he says no uh, support for government of capitalists and landlords. Right, right, right. Defense's position on the war, was, that, that idea was pretty uh, widely held by socialist um, figures across the spectrum. And that was, the idea was that Russia should, um, that the war should not be fought to gain territory. Um, and that, uh, you know, basically it, it, it was, it, the desire was to get out of the war and that, that the idea was the socialists would not stand for any power gaining territorially from the war itself. But, but Lenin's point was that he wanted the Bolshevik party to, to take power and his comrades in Russia knew that 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 just couldn't happen because the Bolsheviks were a very tiny operation. They were not very uh, substantial in terms of their leadership. They were over time in 1917 um, gaining more and more support among workers, uh, especially in Petrograd. But it was a, it was a sort of laughable idea that they were going to take power uh, uh, even in April when, when Lenin finally comes and he arrives uh, in April uh, and when he arrives, he establishes these positions very clearly. The positions were um, that the war needed to end, and he advocated that the provisional government needed to come down, and that all power needed to go to the Soviets. And these were these were sort of unheard of slogans, and they were really kind of, as I say, sort of laughably quixotic to most to most people at the time. Except. Except, except that they began to get, gain ground. Except they began to gain ground. And they gained ground because, and this is where you have to give Lenin credit, because he knew where uh, the popular sentiment was. I mean, the, the, the provisional government led by the Constitutional Democrats, the Liberal Democrats, the people who we would consider to be the heroes of the story, um, although they, they pursued a lot of what might be called progressive policies. They, they abolished the capital punishment, for example, mm -hmm. they granted uh, full uh, female suffrage first time in anywhere in the Western world where women had the right to vote, but they insisted on continuing to prosecute the war 
they were committed to fighting the war uh, because they were good liberals. They they saw themselves as as uh, you know strong allies of France and Britain, and they were not going to abandon their 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 allies at this point. And so they made that fatal error of continuing to fight the war. And as long as the war continued, the more misery the population of the country, and in particular in Petrograd and Moscow, uh, underwent, and the more Lenin's hard line of end the war, end the provisional government, give all power to the Soviets, um, you know, that, that ended up winning out in the end. And that's further strengthened by their impotence in waging the war. They can't wage the war. So the one thing, the one thing that they're really staking themselves on, the difference, this war is they're unable to do. So they look ridiculous uh, as they attempt to do something which no one really wants to do. The provisional government. The provisional government, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They, I mean, they, they, the first provisional government up till a, a, April, basically, um, discredits itself because of this insistence on fighting the war. So in April, when Lenin returns, um, the the constitutional Democrats who are in power in the provisional government are insistent on prosecuting this war. Uh, they refuse to abandon this now, this grand democratic crusade against the uh, central powers. And uh, as a consequence of that, uh, they discredit themselves. Now, the Soviet, the Petrograd Soviet, which is dom dominated by Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries, managed to uh, force the provisional government to abandon this uh, this uh, full uh, full uh, uh, fighting of the war and, and, and to change to a defensive position, defensive position, which is to say, fight only in defense of uh, in the territory of Russia and no longer attempt to try to defeat the, the, the Germans. They succeed in getting the provisional government to, to change this. And uh, as a consequence, uh, in long, along with this change in, in line, the provisional government uh, takes in several representatives of the, of the Menshevik and uh, socialist revolutionary, especially parties into the provisional government itself. And so this is where you get a figure like Alexander Kerensky, who is a socialist, Kerensky enters the provisional government in at this point as a result of the April crisis. He becomes defense minister. And Kerensky uh, tries to do a sort of uh, uh, compromise between the, uh, the original uh, prosecution of the war to defeat Germany and and the and the and the socialist ideal of uh, a defensist uh, uh, war where there would be no um, territorial gains by any parties to the war. What he wants to do, eventually, he comes up with an idea in June. He uh, launches a, an offensive, and the, and the idea was that he would launch an offensive that would be. Uh, so successful that it would bring all parties of the war to the negotiation table. Again, it's it's this really sort of idealistic sort of you know dream Nuts. that yeah, and it was a fiasco. It was a fiasco, and consequently, uh, then by that point, uh, those revolution those socialist parties that were involved in the provisional government were themselves becoming more and more discredited just as the constitutional democrats had before them because of their continuing involvement in the war mm -hmm. 
as this, uh, as the war itself uh, tars more and more uh, of the left-wing parties, uh, the Bolsheviks increasingly gain right ground uh, as a consequence of this. Uh, by by October, you know they and the left wing of the socialist revolutionaries and the left wing of the Mensheviks, which are very few actually, are the last ones around to actually uh, insist that the war end. And so they are the only ones who are pure. Yeah. Basically, and the so the so when the October Revolution comes, um, it's not a it's not a sort of uh, it's not like spontaneous bread riots by the women of Petrograd. It's a it's a it's a coup, right? No, it's absolutely. Um, it, it's to call October a revolution is 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 really stretching it. In fact, the Bolsheviks themselves, for many years into the nineteen twenties, didn't even call what happened in October a revolution. They called it a pirivot, which is a which is a coup, an overturning. Uh-huh. And um, as the months wore on, from April, June, July, on into uh, August. Um, <sighs> Of course, uh, things just continued to deteriorate. I mean, chaos really was really the way to describe what was going on. Uh, civil authority was dissolving. Uh, economic uh, production was at a standstill. There was even greater and greater food shortages. And um, interestingly, under those conditions, there was actually less and less activism on the streets. It's almost as if people had become uh, numb, had, mm-hmm. had exhausted themselves. Um, and by the time uh, that uh, October comes around, um, the Bolsheviks, uh, Lenin in particular, understood that the time was 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 ripe, so to speak, that this was the moment, if they were going to take power, this was the moment they would do it. And in fact, they did it quite easily. As Lenin himself put it, um, it's as if they found power lying out on the street and they just picked it up. Um, yeah, there's only one uh, Kerensky and the provisional government defended by just one battalion of women fighters. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's it it couldn't be you know I, it it's hard to believe but the, it, it's just you know you yeah. couldn't make the stuff up right no you couldn't and and uh, and so uh, this was planned over the course of a couple weeks um, by this time the Bolsheviks had dominate they dominate the Petrograd Soviet and had organized what they called the military revolutionary committee and this was essentially a conspiracy that planned the takeover of of um of the city mm-hmm. and the way they did it was they seized all the major institutions of uh, 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 the, the the institutions of power or authority in the city so the telegraph office the banks the bridges and then ultimately they stormed the winter palace now there's this famous scene in in eisenstein's um October, 10 days that shook the world that makes it look like that was this huge um popular uprising that flooded into the into the winter palace in fact it, it was it was a very small uh, uh clandestine affair and uh, the winter palace was practically abandoned there was a few of the ministers of the provisional government present um it was a pretty pathetic uh a show of of, of um of authority, in fact, but uh, 
they were right that authority had broken down to such a point where anybody who had the will mm -hmm. and the organizational capacity to do it could take over and they did and they established uh, a new order um, as, a, as a result so by uh, let's just uh, we have to finish up here but and um, I know you would argue that just as the Russian Revolution can be said to have begun anywhere from 1860 to 1905, it goes on, on for far longer. But let's just, we're going to end by the events of the 1917, basically. Yeah. Um, if we went to a year after February 23rd, 1917, to late February 1918, what has happened by that time? By February 1918? Um... February 1918, a lot has happened. Uh, <laughs> we've got the October Revolution. Then we've among, among, negotiations right. with the Germans, I guess, to end the Russian that, involvement in the war. That's right. So by the time, uh, so so soon after the Bolsheviks take power in October, uh, very soon after, they um, pursue peace with the Germans, uh, succeed in ultimately signing a peace treaty with the Germans that was incredibly costly. A lot of a lot of territory had to be ceded to Germany as a consequence of this. Um, in addition to that, the consti the Constituent Assembly, which I haven't mentioned, a constitutional convention essentially that had been promised by the provisional government um, since its inception, was uh, finally held. There was an election held. The, the election to the Constituent Assembly was actually held a month after the Bolsheviks took power. They wanted to call the election off, but uh, they knew that if they'd done that, they probably would have been kicked right back out of power. So they actually allowed the Constituent Assembly to meet in January of 1918, um, and it uh, they, they closed it down within a day. Uh, uh, the election itself is really quite a quite a. Uh, a thing to behold itself because the, 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 the election results show definitively how little support the Bolsheviks actually had in the population. They, they, they did not win uh, a great deal of seats. The socialist revolutionaries, as I indicated before, the party of the peasants were by far the, 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 the major um, component of the constituent assembly. But the Bolsheviks ended up closing that down as a consequence of the, constitu the Constituent Assembly being closed down and their disastrous, uh, from the perspective of, of patriots, of course, Russian patriots, the disastrous peace with Germany, uh, the Civil War begins. And really, one might say that, that uh, if October wasn't the revolution, the Civil War really constitutes uh -huh. the Bolshevik Revolution because it's there that all the, the, the real bloody fighting takes place. And it's during that civil war period that the Bolsheviks um, really set the pattern for how they would govern once their once their authority was firmly established and safe within the country. Uh, well, we're we're going to have to leave the Russian civil war for another conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, my guest today has been Rick Hernandez. Uh, he's a professor of history at East Carolina University. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Al. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. 
Matt Lehas keeps WAUG Studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.